Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin this hour with the 2020 lead as we head into the third night of the Republican National Convention. Tonight, Vice President Pence will deliver his nomination acceptance speech from Fort McHenry in Baltimore, Maryland, with an audience of more than 100 guests expected. Pence's remarks are still being written, we're told, but a source tells CNN that he plans to address the recent violence in Wisconsin, hoping to make a case for standing for the national anthem, and he will attack the Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden. One source saying, he plans to, quote, take some lumber to Joe. Pence's wife, Second Lady Karen Pence, will also speak, as well as outgoing White House counselor Kellyanne Conway and a Trump campaign official says President Trump will participate in tonight's program, as he has every night so far. White House officials are defending President Trump's use of the White House, the People's House, as a political backdrop throughout the convention, which breaks, of course, longstanding precedent and a 1939 law called the Hatch Act, that bans federal employees exempting the president and vice president from using their positions in government for political election purposes, as CNN's Caitlin Collins now explains. Tonight, Vice President Mike Pence will headline night three of the Republican convention, where he's expected to address the pandemic and racial unrest unfolding in Wisconsin. He'll speak to the nation from Fort McHenry, the site of the battle in the War of 1812 that inspired Francis Scott Key to pen the Star-Spangled Banner. Pence is expected to wade into the nation's culture wars by urging athletes to stand for the national anthem. I don't think it's too much to ask the players in the National Football League to stand for our national anthem. Kellyanne Conway and Second Lady Karen Pence will also speak tonight. It'll be an exciting night to highlight the heroes in this great country. On night two of the convention, Trump all but erased the long-standing line between official government business and politics. He pardoned a Nevada man convicted of bank robbery who has since founded a nonprofit and swore in five new citizens at a naturalization ceremony despite his restrictive stance on immigration. You are now fellow citizens of the greatest nation on the face of God's earth. Congratulations. After two Marines appeared in uniform in that video, a Marine Corps spokeswoman dismissed concerns that they were being used for political messaging, saying they were only there in their assigned place of duty. The president's chief of staff dismissed concerns that he and top officials were abusing federal offices and property for political gain. Nobody outside of the beltway really cares. They expect that Donald Trump is going to promote Republican values, and they would expect that Barack Obama, when he was office, that he would do the same for Democrats. The evening also featured a rare speech from First Lady Melania Trump, who broke with her husband's administration by expressing sympathy for those affected by coronavirus. I know many people are anxious and some feel helpless. I want you to know you're not alone. It was a sharp break from the president's top economic advisor who talked about COVID-19 as if it was in the past. 
It was awful. Health and economic impacts were tragic. Hardship and heartbreak were everywhere. Coronavirus tests were not required for most guests in the Rose Garden last night, though an aide says people sitting near the president were tested. Now, Jake, the crowd at tonight's speech is expected to be the biggest one yet of the convention with well over 100 people, though it will be outside. It's still not clear if they're going to be testing all of those guests. We were required to be tested before going in tonight. The reporters were at least. But of course, the crowd tonight and that size is going to pale in comparison to what we're expecting to be on the South Lawn tomorrow night for President Trump's speech. They're not just talking as if the pandemic's in the past. They're they're acting as if it's in the past. Caitlin Collins. Thanks so much. Uh, Joining us now, President Trump's former national security advisor, uh, John Bolton, who, of course, wrote a blistering insider account of his time at the White House. It's titled The Room Where It Happened, a bestseller. Mr. Ambassador, thanks for being here. So let me ask you, this is the third day of the convention. Uh, Based on what you've seen so far, do you think it is effective enough to get President Trump reelected? Well, I think it's put him on the on the road. That's for sure. It, we, we don't really have experience, obviously, with virtual conventions, but but conventions typically give some kind of bounce, especially in motivating those who are already supporters. It looks to me like it's well produced, and I think uh, there's a real advantage to being the incumbent and coming second after the Democratic convention. So I I think it clearly is going to help him. Uh, in terms of uh, being the incumbent, we have seen some unprecedented. Uh, destruction of norms during this convention, uh, what seem blatant violations of the Hatch Act, which, which bans federal employees uh, from conducting political uh, purposes, uh, political actions from their, their government posts. The president, of course, is exempt from that. Uh, but White House staff are on hand as he uses the White House as a backdrop, political prop. He issued a pardon uh, during the convention. He naturalized citizens during the convention, videos of, the, of that ran. Uh, you have Secretary of State Pompeo, Secretary of Homeland Security Chad Wolf playing roles in the convention. Does this bother you? Well, I don't think these are violations of the Hatch Act. I mean, I wrote on that back in the day. I, I think it's unseemly, and I know that's a word you don't normally use about uh, politics in the Trump era, but, but that's what people should focus on. Both parties are, are guilty of it over time, but, but it's a question of what the American people want. And I'm worried that this is just part of this conduct in the convention is just part of the destruction of standards. To fight over whether it's legal or not, I think, is, uh, is, a, is a mistake. It's just unseemly. I, I can't help but think uh, that if a Democratic president did this, Republicans w- would be screaming and rioting from a mountaintop. Should, should more of your fellow Republicans be speaking out against this? I mean, this is now going to be a norm, theoretically. I mean, if Biden or some Democrat is elected president at some point, whether it's November or in the future, they now can accept their renomination from the White House when Republicans can't say boo. Look, it's unseemly for both parties, but but this is a case of people with short memories. I'll give you an example. The left on the Democratic Party, very upset about this. In 1968, I remember vividly, Dean Rusk, Secretary of State testified before the Democratic Platform Committee and the left of the Democratic Party then was all in favor of it because they wanted to rip his lungs out about the Vietnam War. They didn't get a chance to do it because he got a note uh, saying that the Soviet troops had crossed the Czechoslovak border heading for Prague. But it has happened before and I, I just think it was bad in both cases.
Sure. I mean, that was a platform committee literally a year before I was born. But, okay, I hear, I hear the point you're making that it has happened to degrees. Rub, um, rub it in. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Secretary Pompeo said in his <laughs> remarks uh, that the president held China accountable on, on coronavirus, um, which I think a lot of people who have been covering this found a curious statement because January, February, March, President Trump was not holding China accountable. In fact, he was listening to President Xi instead of his own health experts. What did you make of that? Well, it's a false statement, uh, as is most of the administration case on how it's handled coronavirus. Uh, they've made a complete mess of it, and it's been a tragedy for Americans, those who have died and their families, the economic consequences. To this day, the administration does not have a coronavirus strategy. Now, they, they may yet get the benefit of it. Recent polls apparently show concern with the virus diminishing as a political matter. So they may be able to tough their way through it. But it's, been a, it's just been one mistake after another. I want to ask you um, uh, about uh, the, the, the fact that the Defense Department's Inspector General uh, has been called, I don't know if he's going to do it, to investigate whether or not the White House and specifically your replacement, National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, uh, retaliated against uh, Alexander Vindman's twin brother, um, who also served in the White House. He was an ethics uh, official in the National Security Council. He's saying that he was retaliated against. Um, what do you make of it all? Well, I've just seen this in the past hour or so, uh, but, but my experience with both uh, Alex Vindman and Yev Vindman, his brother, is that they were uh, outstanding staffers at the NSC. And uh, I have read uh, the, the House Democrats' letter, which on Yev Vindman's account quotes two different efficiency reports that his lawyer in the White House that his supervisor in the White House Counsel's Office wrote. And in the summer of uh, 2019, uh, Yev is an outstanding uh, staffer at the NSC, and just a few months later, uh, it looks like he needs remedial reading. That that strikes me right there uh, as evidence that either the supervisor wasn't doing his job or that there's retaliation. So I find this a pretty stunning development, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what the DOD Inspector General does with it, because it's, it's, it's hot. There's no doubt about it. At the last minute uh, last night, uh, the Republican National Convention had to pull a speaker who had tweeted out uh, a link to a deranged anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that even referenced the Protocol of the Elders of Zion, which was a, a, a czarist uh, propaganda tool to drum up anti-Semitism uh, in czarist Russia. Uh, this isn't the, the first time that these conspiracy theories have made their way into the Republican uh, Party in recent weeks. Um, we have two different Republican congressional nominees, one in Georgia, one in Florida, who are, who are open conspiracy theorists, whether they're supporting QAnon uh, or they're self-proclaimed Islamophobes celebrating the death of migrants. Are you worried about the, what, what the Republican Party is becoming under President Trump? Well, I'm worried about Trump. That's, that's what worries me. I, I think the Republican Party after this election is going to have a very serious conversation about the direction we want to go in. It will be uh, immediate if Trump loses, but it's going to happen even if he wins. Uh, I wish we just had a figure in the conservative movement today like William F. Buckley Jr., who used to, to be able to enter into these debates and say, this is just simply not acceptable for responsible conservatives to believe in. But since there is no philosophy that governs this administration, uh, that, that's how these extremists creep in, and it is disturbing. 
Ambassador John Bolton, thank you so much. The book again, The Room Where It Happened. Thank you so much. Coming up, Vice President Mike Pence is the headliner tonight at the Republican National Convention. CNN special coverage begins tonight at 7 o'clock Eastern. And coming up, how themes of fear in this convention have sparked anger after three nights of violence in Wisconsin. Plus, the CDC's decision, suspicious, to suddenly change its guidance for coronavirus testing, how this may impact you if you need to get tested. Plus, revelation today that pressure on the CDC to make these changes came from the top. And we're back with the health lead today, a shocking and confusing and suspicious change from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, suggesting that a rule take effect that would have fewer people being tested for the coronavirus in the United States. Fewer. The exact opposite of what so many health experts say is needed in order to identify and isolate the virus in order to save lives. A senior federal health official telling CNN that the change was made after pressure from the top of the Trump administration. The CDC is no longer recommending testing for people who do not have symptoms, even if they've been in close contact with an infected person. Now, we know that President Trump has been lamenting that so much testing results in higher numbers of cases, a view of the virus that really makes no sense scientifically. It's just political because he thinks it makes him look bad. We test more than anybody by far. And when you test, you create cases. So we've created cases. You're not creating cases. Taking a test simply reveals an infection. It does not create the infection. It's like saying a pregnancy test is what creates a pregnancy. It's not. And there's no way to sugarcoat this. This move to limit testing could theoretically cost lives, if a, as a top health expert put it. People without symptoms are, quote, exactly the people who should be tested, given the fact that the CDC estimates about half of the transmission of coronavirus in the U.S. happens before any symptoms appear. This decision means more infected people, theoretically, will be walking the streets, spreading the virus. This new guidance also comes despite the fact that major labs have been scaling up capacity. Quest Diagnostics, for instance, now saying it can handle double the testing it is currently running, but the average number of testing in the U.S. has dropped, as CNN's Nick Watt reports. Increasing testing. Get that testing. On the testing piece. That's been a mantra. Test, trace, isolate. Not anymore. The CDC just changed its testing guidance from testing is recommended for all close contacts of persons with infection to this. If you've been in close contact but do not have symptoms, you do not necessarily need a test. These are exactly the people who should be tested. I think the CDC really needs to give a much better explanation. The entire process of how this was done in the middle of the night with no explanation, um, it just causes more confusion. It's coming from the top down, one senior federal health official tells CNN from the White House. Our surge testing sites really look for asymptomatic individuals. We're trying to get appropriate testing, not less testing. I think it's more likely that this is an intentional effort by the administration to conceal the true extent of transmission and the numbers. Already in just the past month, the average number of tests per day has fallen 17 percent. We want to decrease cases by decreasing transmission, not by decreasing testing. Nationally, the number of new cases is also falling even faster. 20 states holding steady, 20 more seeing average case counts drop. While we're coming down, we're nowhere close to where we need to be. And again, when people say we're coming down, we're coming down from a very high peak. And right now, actually record high average case counts in parts of the Midwest, Iowa, Kansas, both Dakotas. And yesterday, a record high death toll 
down in Mississippi. Don't have parties with 150 to 200 people there. Uh, that's not going to work out well, likely, um, for everyone else. Thousands of cases now on college campuses and hundreds suspended for breaking rules around social gatherings. Montclair State in New Jersey just texted students, is the next message you want to get, pack your bags and go home? And at North Carolina State, they just topped 500 cases among the student body. So they're now going to start moving students out of on-campus housing. They're going to do it very slowly so they can socially distance as they do it. Now, finally, some good news, Jake. Moderna, potential vaccine trial, phase one. It appears to be safe and also triggers an immune response in every age group, including the elderly. Jake. All right. That is good news. Nick Watt, thank you so much. I want to bring in CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And Sanjay, we just learned that the coronavirus task force approved these CDC changes, this rule change that Dr. Osterholm last hour said he, he knows that he can't understand any health reason for it. But you just spoke with Dr. Fauci, who's on uh, that task force. What did he have to tell you? Well, you know, so this task force meeting where this apparently was discussed was last Thursday. So I was asking Dr. Fauci about this, and he said this. I'm going to read this because I want to make sure I get it right. He said, I was under general anesthesia in the operating room last Thursday. It was not part of any discussion or deliberation regarding these new testing recommendations. And he went on to say, I'm concerned about the interpretation of these recommendations and worried it will give people the incorrect assumption that asymptomatic spread is not of great concern. In fact, it is. So, Jake, he, he wasn't part of the deliberations or discussions. And this is a problem, right? I mean, because Admiral Gerard was just asked about this on a briefing, and he said Dr. Fauci signed off on this. He wasn't part of these discussions. He was under, in the operating room, for one thing. But also, he doesn't agree with this in the sense that he, he, he thinks that this may give people the incorrect assumption that asymptomatic transmission is no big deal. It is, it is a big deal, and we can talk about that. But this is worrisome. I mean, this, this is a clear schism, clear difference. Uh, we heard one thing from Admiral Girard on the task force, and now we're hearing something different from Dr. Anthony Fauci. Well, Girard has said that, that he's doing everything he can to get testing up to speed, which is factually not accurate. Um, he also said the guidance changed because of current evidence. Do you have any idea what he's talking about? What, what evidence? No. No, we, we, we don't. I mean, look, Jake, we've been reporting on this for months now, right? So we're keeping up with the evidence all the time, talking to sources, looking at preprints, looking at non-even uh, published journal articles, trying to f keep up with this evidence. There isn't. In fact, the evidence would suggest the opposite, which is that 50% of the spread, roughly, maybe even more, according to some data that's coming out now, 50% uh, of that spread comes from asymptomatic people or pre-symptomatic people people who don't yet have symptoms. So the idea that you wouldn't test them, because they don't know that they have the virus and they're out there potentially spreading it. The idea that you wouldn't test them flies in the face of everything. It flies in the face of what has worked in other countries. And you know, if you know one thing from public health, it is test and then trace and then you know, figure out who those cl close contacts are and test them so that you can actually start to slow down the spread of the virus. This strategy, and I've heard this from numerous people today who have called me, uh, this could potentially worsen the trajectory of this pandemic. More people will get infected, more people will get hospitalized, and more people will die because of a decision like this, and I think that's why people are so concerned. And we're trying to figure out why this decision was made. There is obviously this important context, Sanjay. President Trump, uh, from the very beginning, 
thought that more people coming into this country, remember when he went down to Atlanta, spoke at the CDC, and there were infected Americans on a cruise ship, and he didn't want them to come into the United States. He didn't want them to disembark because the numbers would go up. He doesn't like the numbers going up because he thinks it makes him look bad. That's the context here. He doesn't want testing. He doesn't want it to happen. He thinks it makes him look bad. Uh, We do not know that that's the reason that this happened, but we know of no health reason why this happened. No, we, we know of no health reason why this happened. And I think what you're suggesting is, is true. And look, I mean, Jake, you've known me for a long time. I'm a medical scientific reporter, but there's no way to disentangle this story any longer from politics. I mean, clearly, uh, you know, this idea of, of the optics of this driving these decisions is, seems to be more and more likely what's happening, and it's dangerous. Uh, and it's, it's the flip side as well, right? Over the weekend, there was an emergency use authorization made for convalescent plasma without adequate data, despite the fact just a few days earlier they said we're not going to go forward with this emergency use authorization uh, because of lack of data. And then they, they just changed on a dime uh, over the weekend. Uh, the, the FDA commissioner who I spoke to about this uh, sort of presented this in a way that was not correct. He said that, it, that 35 people out of 100 will survive as a result of this therapy. That's not correct. Right. So it, there was not the data and the, what little data was there uh, was not correctly presented. These two things have happened, Jake, just within the last couple of days. Um, both are very, um, uh, they don't make sense. There's no evidence to back them up. And, I, and I'm worried. I think that these are dangerous decisions that are getting made. And, and we don't know exactly what's driving it, but it's seemingly more and more not coming from science, not coming from the scientists. And we have already seen in this pandemic decisions made that are rooted in politics and not health, not medicine, have cost Americans their lives. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Breaking news, according to the NBA, the Milwaukee Bucks are boycotting their scheduled game this afternoon. Why? We'll tell you why. That's next. Breaking news now, NBA television has just announced that the Milwaukee Bucks are boycotting the NBA playoff game that is scheduled to happen right now. This coming after the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Wisconsin. The Orlando Magic came out for the game, but the Bucks remained in their locker room. They did not come out to the court for the game. Let's get right to CNN sports analyst Christine Brennan. Christine, uh, what message does it send for the players to decide as a team that they're boycotting the game? Jake, it sends an incredibly powerful message from the NBA about how serious their players and coaches are about the shooting of Jacob Blake. Obviously, Milwaukee Bucks, Kenosha, Wisconsin. The proximity there, of course, cannot be denied. They're looking out for their community. They're looking out for people of color. Uh, the continuation of uh, the, uh, the shooting of, of unarmed black men is something that NBA players far and wide have been speaking out about. Uh, LeBron James, uh, you name it. People are sick and tired of seeing this. Doc Rivers, coach of the L.A. Clippers, an impassioned talk uh, at at his press conference uh, yesterday, Jake. And so all put together, this is the NBA doing what the NBA does best, and that is speak uh, with one voice for a culture that that needs a voice. And I think uh, that is exactly what we're seeing here today. Do you expect to see other NBA teams follow suit? I I do. What I'm seeing, uh, just some quick reporting that I've been trying to do, Jake, 
is that there are real conversations here about what every other team is going to do. As I understand it, the Orlando Magic also, that was the team that the Milwaukee Bucks were, going, were playing, uh, that the, I'm seeing the wording say, and I'm not, I have not confirmed this 100%, but that both Orlando and Milwaukee decided not to play. We need to check on that, but what that would indicate, if true, is that the Orlando Magic decided to join the Milwaukee Bucks. So it wouldn't be that one team was was boycotting or forfeiting, that they both did it together. Uh, and I think that is a sign, and no surprise to me, that's a sign of exactly how the NBA would want to do this. I wouldn't be surprised if behind the scenes right now, Jake, where uh, the commissioner, Adam Silver, and others are talking about this, looking at the big picture, looking at the concern from this league in particular about the shooting of unarmed black men in this country and saying maybe we need to look at this as, as a big picture and maybe ha may have to make some decisions about more than just this one game. And this also happens during the Republican National Convention. We're told that Vice President Pence, uh, who is expected to speak this evening, accepting his nomination, renomination as vice president at Fort McHenry in Baltimore, we're, we're told that he uh, was going to talk about uh, the players who kneel during the national anthem at NFL games. Um, they do that to protest uh, police violence, to protest the kinds of things that we're talking about here. Um, but this is a this is a bigger statement than kneeling before the national anthem, although that's obviously a very, a very significant statement and has cost uh, uh, Colin Kaepernick his career and, and more. This is boycotting a game, a playoff game, no less. Exactly. It is a, a huge statement. The NBA, once again, leading the conversation. They did it back, with, uh, back in, on March 11th, Jake, when the NBA was the first really big entity to shut down leading into uh, the, the pandemic and, of course, our national shutdown. The NBA leads in so many ways. And Doc Rivers, I mentioned a few moments ago, the coach of the L.A. Clippers, a longtime great in the NBA, uh, he said it best, I think, in terms of what the feeling is in the NBA. He said, we keep loving this country even though it doesn't love us. And he talked about the Republican convention. He brought that up. This is, again, an NBA coach, head coach, saying uh, we're hearing this talk about fear and our, our, and our Republican convention and our suburbs and all of these things that we've been hearing the last few days. And he brought up the fact that, that this just doesn't coincide uh, with what they are thinking in the NBA and what we are seeing on the streets, in this case, in Kenosha, uh, very close, of course, to Milwaukee. So absolutely, this is, in, this is linked, politics, sports, and the NBA right in the middle of it, once again, in a very powerful way. All right, Christy Brennan, thank you so much. CNN Sarah Seidner is live for us from Kenosha, Wisconsin. Sarah, uh, this is a, a strong message from the Milwaukee Bucks. This is all happening, of course, because of what's going on uh, where you are. Uh, NBA coach Doc Rivers, of course, had strong words about the aftermath, uh, as you heard from Christine Brennan. Um, Republicans, of course, repeating themes of fear at their convention. Here's Doc Rivers, the coach of the L.A. Clippers. Take a listen. Looks like we're, we're, we don't have that soundbite ready, but in any case, Sarah Seidner, uh, tell us about, first of all, where you're standing right now with that destruction behind you. Yeah. So uh, this was uh, the part of the Department of Corrections here, like a parole office here in Kenosha, burned to the ground. There are other buildings uh, around us that were also burned to the ground. Uh, we should mention, you know, this was part of uh, the reaction from 
the shooting of Jacob Blake, uh, the 29-year-old father who was headed to his car, got into a tussle pol with police, uh, and then headed around to his car trying to get into his car, and an officer shoots him seven times in the back, leaving him paralyzed from the waist down. Uh, his family has been adamant that the protests that happened in his name be peaceful protests, but that is just not what has happened uh, overnight. There have been uh, several incidents uh, where not only are sort of protesters and police going back and forth, but there have been two people killed and one person very badly injured in a shooting incident. Uh, we now know that a 17-year-old young man uh, has been arrested. That 17-year-old came in from out of town because the Antioch Police Department says that he is an Antioch resident. Where is Antioch? It's about 13 miles from here in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in Illinois. Uh, and so for whatever reason, he showed up here uh, and ended up, uh, according to police, shooting and killing someone. Uh, we have seen two horrific incidents that were captured uh, on camera by people in the crowds, uh, by live streamers, uh, by folks who are just out there uh, protesting, one of which a man is shot in the head, mm -hmm. uh, which is extremely disturbing, and another of which uh, someone is shot and then another person is shot in the arm. Uh, and we see someone walking down the street with a huge long gun across his chest, holding his hands up towards police. Police never arrested that man, but now one person is under arrest, a 17-year-old uh, from about 13 miles from here in Antioch. And, and, uh, and Sarah, the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, as I'm sure you know, the Milwaukee Bucks uh, are supposed to be playing a, a playoff game about now, uh, but they have refused to come yep. out of their locker, yep. locker room. They are protesting uh, because of the shooting of Jacob Blake in their home state, uh, Wisconsin, uh, in, which is in Milwaukee, not far from uh, Kenosha. Yeah, I mean, this is a huge statement. Um, in reaction to what happened to Jacob Blake, uh, in reaction to what is happening here in Kenosha, um, it is an incredibly big statement for an NBA team. And we're seeing this more and more. We're seeing people uh, wearing the shirts of people who have been shot and killed by police, of black people to be specific, who have been shot and killed by police, whether it is Breonna Taylor or George Floyd. Uh, and now in this scenario, you have a 29-year-old dad who, who, by the way, you know, survived this um, and who is fighting in the hospital with many different injuries, but is expected to survive. But the video itself has stirred so many emotions in people uh, because they are seeing this happen in their minds time after time after time, uh, and that it doesn't seem to be letting up. And because there was really a vacuum of information from police. We did not hear from any investigative authority. Uh, we didn't hear from the state police. We didn't hear from the sheriff. We didn't hear from uh, the, the, the police here in Kenosha uh, for several days. And so it left a, a vacuum of information. A lot of people not understanding, you know, what the circumstances of all of this was, not what happened before uh, Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back. Um, and so there is a lot of consternation here about that as well, although we do understand that the way that the laws work here is that the local police are not allowed to investigate themselves. That goes to the State Department of Justice. Uh, but there really has been a vacuum of information. And filling that void, filling that vacuum is a lot of rumors, a lot of people, you know, getting upset about a lot of different things. And certainly people out in the streets demanding not only answers, but justice uh, as they see it. Uh, this was an absolutely unnecessary and horrific shooting uh, of Jacob Blake. Uh, we have not heard uh, what police are saying, or we have not heard their side, if you will, of the story. 
story. And so there are a lot of folks who are worried that this is going to escalate and escalate and escalate, especially since we are now seeing people coming to town, standing outside of businesses, saying they're only here to protect the businesses. They are strapped with weapons, some of them wearing some army fatigues. It just is a recipe for an, uh, for an explosion of potential violence. And we saw that happen and, and, and unfold last night. Jake? Sarah Seidner, stay with us. I want to go back to Christine Brennan, our sports analyst. Uh, And Christine, one of the things that I'm struck by is uh, this year uh, has been marked in so many ways uh, by the NBA. One of the ways that the nation first sat up and realized how serious the coronavirus pandemic was, was uh, after an NBA game was canceled on March 11th, I believe, That was a moment, it was the same day that Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson were diagnosed, or was announced that they were diagnosed of having coronavirus. Uh, And now we have this moment of civil disobedience by the Milwaukee Bucks uh, and possibly others uh, protesting the shooting of Jacob Blake. Um, It really seems uh, quite remarkable. It does, Jake. And that March 11th date, I think there will be books, many books written on on how the NBA basically was the North Star for so many of us. Because when the NBA said we're suspending operations, uh, that everything followed within a day or two. The dominoes fell and, and the entire nation was shut down. Uh, I also think we're seeing something absolutely extraordinary here. Sarah described it as well. Uh, of a of athletes, what do we think of? We think they make they're millionaires. You know, they make so much money. This is they play a game. Uh, they're lucky in many ways. And the NBA players, unlike some of their counterparts in other leagues, Jake, uh, they act like they know that, and they act like they get it. And we are seeing something that rarely happens, which is uh, players actively saying we're not going to play. Uh, taking themselves out of the thing they love the most. And, of course, it's the playoffs in the NBA bubble. We see this with the WNBA, with the shirts that they're all wearing. We've seen Black Lives Matter, especially in basketball, with the NBA and then also the WNBA. And so this is a moment, really, of sacrifice for these players. They're making lots of money. They will continue to make lots of money. But they're giving up something that we will rarely see a player give up. I'm racking my brain to think of, you know, Sandy Koufax not pitching because of religious reasons in a World Series. You do see these things every now and then, but it's incredibly rare. And more often we see a selfishness among many people, including athletes. This is not the case here. We are seeing the NBA stand up in a remarkable way that will once again be a part of the narrative, of this incredible narrative of 2020. All right, Christy Brennan, stay with us. I want to bring in uh, Bob Costas, uh, the legend uh, sportscaster. Uh, uh, Bob, um, I have not seen anything like this in my life. Uh, An NBA team uh, boycotting as a way of civil disobedience, as a way of protest. The Milwaukee Bucks saying that they're not going to play. I believe that there are other playoff games that are going to take place uh, this evening, but not them. Put this in some sort of historical perspective uh, for us, if you would. Yeah, Jake, I have not seen anything exactly comparable to this. There have been gestures. I'm old enough to remember I was a teenager when Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their fists at the Mexico City Olympics in 1968. Of course, Muhammad Ali, not in a team sport, gave up three-plus years of his career, uh, and that was remarkable and remains at the top of the pyramid in this respect. There have been concerted efforts by athletes at various times, but never anything that is comparable to this. Colin Kaepernick and others kneeling. Yes, Black Lives Matter on the court at all the NBA playoff games. Yes, the Detroit Lions yesterday not practicing, which was a a significant 
statement. But in this case, you're talking about a game and a playoff game at that. And I don't know if others will follow, but obviously it's appropriate, as Christine mentioned a moment ago, it's appropriate that the Milwaukee Bucks lead the way because if you live in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the Milwaukee Bucks are your NBA team. And Bob, obviously sports leagues and the NBA in particular have been a place where players are, are speaking their minds, standing up for what they believe. Uh, this is obviously a, a, a stark example of civil disobedience and protest. Is it hurting the NBA with any fans who don't want politics in their professional athletics? I think there's no question that it's hurting the NBA in that respect. But that doesn't mean that it's wrong. And I think that Adam Silver, uh, who, like his predecessor, David Stern, has always been a forward-looking commissioner. Uh, He's got something to balance here. But I think his basic sympathies are with the players in this situation. And, and Bob, we're told now um, CNN is learning and it's it's a possibility. Uh, it has not been 100 percent confirmed that it's possible that all playoff games uh, are going to be uh, canceled uh, this evening. Um, does that surprise you or is that exactly what you thought might happen with the Milwaukee Bucks taking the lead? No, it doesn't surprise me. I guess there's a distinction here if we're just thinking about it from a basketball standpoint and the ongoing playoffs, a distinction between canceled and postponed. They could make these games up. I, I don't think it makes any difference. If they make the games up, the statement has still been made. And then Adam Silver has got to figure out a way to navigate this so that, yes, we can continue to play after this, but we have made a very, very strong statement by postponing all the games today. And one of the things I think works in Adam Silver's favor, and this is not a criticism of the other commissioners. There are different dynamics at work in every sport. But I think it's safe to say that the relationship between the commissioner's office and the players in the NBA is the most, is the most healthy and the most uh, cooperative Not that there aren't some disputes and disagreements, but the most healthy of any of the four uh, men's team sports that we follow in North America. We've also seen uh, some uh, protests being permitted at NFL games, Um, not so much uh, with Major League Baseball. Uh, What is the reason behind that, do you think? I think there might be multiple reasons. Uh, the NFL is some 70% African-American. Uh, the, the predominant number of players in the NBA, the same. Uh, baseball has many, many players of color, especially if you consider Hispanic players, who are a very significant part of baseball's playing population. But it is, it is not primarily uh, a sport of players of color. Does that have something to do with it? You'd have to think it does. That doesn't mean that there aren't some uh, very sympathetic players there, sympathetic to this cause, and there were people who knelt uh, during the national anthem at the beginning of the resumption of of the baseball season. But I would think that that's the primary reason uh, that you haven't seen it as much in baseball as in football uh, and in basketball. And I'm old enough to remember, Bob, I'm not old enough to remember the 1968 Olympics, but I am old enough to remember uh, when Michael Jordan uh, was pressured, guilted 
for not being more politically active uh, when he was a star player, for not uh, being more outspoken in support of Harvey Gantt, who was running for Senate uh, against a racist incumbent Republican Senator Jesse Helms. Uh, and he said, and I believe this was recently confirmed, uh, Republicans buy sneakers too, although perhaps it's apocryphal. Either way, it has really been a, a sea change when it comes to athletes saying their politics. Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, just in fairness to Michael Jordan, he says that he said that in jest on the Bulls team bus after a practice one day. And he has recently committed $100 million of his own money over 10 years to social justice causes. And I don't think that any individual needs to be pressured into doing something that is outside his or her beliefs or what they're most comfortable with or that they feel most equipped to do. So I'm not critical of Michael Jordan sure. for what he didn't do when he was a player, except in that one instance. And I said this before, I said it 20 years ago. Jesse Helms was a blatant racist. Harvey Gantt wasn't just, although it's significant, an African-American man running against a blatant racist. But that's the key. This wasn't your normal political differences. This was a stark moral question. And Michael Jordan sat that one out. Yeah, I, I don't mean to shame Michael Jordan, uh, of whom I am I'm a tremendous fan. I just mean that the times have changed. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's more of what so. I mean. Yeah, I very mean, that was the, the 1980s. Uh, and it wasn't as though Dr. J and Magic Johnson were running around endorsing uh, progressive causes at the time. Uh, really, very few people were. I mean, Muhammad Ali was the exception. And I'm just saying it's so widespread today. The, the, the culture has changed. Yeah, the situation has reached critical mass. And I know people will get on me or us for saying this, but you cannot have a more stark contrast with this happening during the week of the Republican convention and most of those voices there standing not just in sympathy with, you don't have to agree with everything, you don't have to agree with the rioting, you don't have to agree with every assertion made by every NBA player or every person who's in sympathy with the cause of Black Lives Matter. There are legitimate disagreements there. But so many of the voices among at the Republican National Convention stand in stark opposition and cannot even bring themselves to express basic sympathy with with the 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 overall issue, not just to say, oh, yeah, there are one offs and, and there are exceptions. No, there's a systemic problem here. And it resonates all the more because it has such historical antecedents. If you can't acknowledge that, no matter what, where you fall, generally speaking, on the political spectrum, I think history has long since left you behind. If you're just learning, uh, joining us, uh, we're following breaking news. The Milwaukee Bucks have announced that they are boycotting their playoff game in the NBA that was supposed to be happening uh, right now. They're doing this because of the shooting by a white police officer or police officers of uh, Jacob Blake. Uh, we've also just learned that all NBA games tonight are being postponed in the wake of the police shooting of Jacob uh, Blake. Um, joining me now to discuss CNN senior political reporter Nia Malika Henderson and CNN senior political analyst uh, Ron Brownstein. Uh, Nia, this is a huge moment, and it's coming just hours before uh, Vice President Pence, who has made a, an issue, a political issue, of opposing uh, those NFL players, those football players, who take a knee during the national anthem so as to protest 
police brutality and racial inequity. I remember him going to a Colts game and, and storming out angrily because he didn't, uh, he didn't like that the Colts, uh, some of them had taken a knee. I believe it was the Colts. Um, and and uh, he uh, was going to, I think, address this, the taking a knee issue, in his speech tonight. And here we have the NBA taking it one huge step forward. A huge, huge step forward. And if you remember, even as there were discussions about uh, the NBA restarting uh, during, you know, after uh, canceling many games because of COVID, there was some discussion among some players about not even wanting to have a season because of what was going on uh, in the country, because of this uh, social justice uh, protest movement that that sprang up this past uh, uh, summer. So so in some ways, you you find this as an outgrowth of the frustrations that many of these players have. Have had and you do have this sea change. You talked about this. This isn't the era of Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson uh, anymore. It's more like the era of Muhammad Ali, of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, people like LeBron James, very, very active, not caring about the bottom line, not caring about maybe uh, alienating some of those white fans who don't like this kind of uh, thing necessarily. But what a huge, huge move uh, for the NBA to send this signal and really put the focus on what needs to be focused on, which is this uh, police brutality problem in this country that has existed for decades and decades and decades with black people prevailing on white people to pay attention to it, right? If you go back to Martin Luther King's speech, he talks about police brutality on on his March on Washington speech. Uh, Nobody really likes to talk about that. They talk about sort of the platitudes, the other uh, more, you know, sort of acceptable platitudes from that speech. Uh, So this is them saying this cannot be ignored and uh, that white people need to sort of be shaken up to to focus on this problem that is making black people uh, throughout this country fear uh, the police and really upset about uh, the racial inequity in this, in this country. And Ron, I think it was 2015, uh, Hillary Clinton was in Missouri and she was asked, I think it was the first time she'd ever heard the term Black Lives Matter. And I, I'm not, I, I don't mean to denigrate Uh, Secretary Clinton's response, because it really wasn't part of the conversation, but she said all lives matter as a response. She thought that that was uh, a helpful thing to say. Obviously, it is not perceived as being a helpful thing to say. Flash forward to 2020, uh, the murder uh, of George Floyd, and you actually have the 2012 Republican nominee, Mitt Romney, marching with Black Lives Matter protesters and saying Black Lives Matter. Again, a huge cultural change in the United States of America. And a cultural change that has moved the center of gravity in the country further away from the Republican coalition. And I think we see that political backdrop very clearly this uh, last two weeks. I mean, I thought last week Democrats talking about systemic racism more openly, explicitly and repeatedly than I at least have ever heard before. And I've been at every convention since 1984. And this week you have a Republican convention uh, that really is focused on, you know, portraying the protesters as, quote, a mob uh, who is coming to get uh, suburban white families in their home. I did think, however, that we really saw the first crack in the armor from President Trump, because all the effort that went into last night trying to, uh, however implausibly, rewrite his history and say that he is a friend now of immigrants and African-Americans uh, and women, I think was an implicit acknowledgement for the first time that I can remember that his strategy of stirring cultural and racial grievance by itself might not be enough to win and that he has to convince a certain 
certain segment of voters that he is not a racist, not a sexist, not a xenophobe, before they will listen to him on other issues. I think that was an important concession, in effect, to the change in public attitudes that you're describing. But I would just say real quickly, 80 percent of Republicans still say police shootings of uh, unarmed African men are isolated incidents, not part of a pattern, even as majority opinion in the country has moved very sharply in the other direction. So those very different visions are heading toward a collision in November. I, I, I believe there are studies suggesting that if you're a black man, you are two to three times more likely uh, to be shot than a, than a white man. Uh, I would have to check on that, but I believe uh, uh, that's the case. Uh, and Neil, like, let's talk for a second about what the Bucks are doing here, because one of the things that's interesting is in addition to these horrific police shootings of unarmed black men, there has also been peaceful protest, and there has also been violent protest. Uh, and today, Vice President Biden issued a statement that he tweeted out, his campaign tweeted out, in which he talked about talking with the family of Jacob Blake. He talked about um, the importance of, of stopping this problem. Uh, but he also condemned the violence taking place in Kenosha, uh, the destruction of property, the destruction of stores, etc., uh, by protesters. We've also heard Jacob Blake's family uh, say similar things. What's interesting to me is what the Bucks just did refocuses the attention back on Jacob Blake, in a way, and away from the violence uh, by protesters uh, in Kenosha. I think that's right, because today you heard, I think it was John Kasich come out and say, listen, the Democrats really need to uh, condemn the violence. And by and large, Democrats have condemned the violence. You see uh, Biden doing it, Keisha Lance Bottoms had a very uh, strong statement in Atlanta when there was some violence going on there. So, so they have been on that side of things. And I think you're right. The Bucks doing this now says, uh, you know, takes the focus off that violence and it puts it back on where uh, the protesters, 99% of them, 90%, whatever, uh, figure you want to say uh, where they want this, which is on uh, the systemic racism that exists in this country, and specifically uh, when it comes to these police departments who oftentimes when they see a black body, whether it be a man or a woman, uh, they react in a way that they wouldn't react uh, to a white person uh, engaged in, in similar behavior. So I think the Bucks have done something extraordinary. It looks like other teams are doing this, and we'll see if, if this kind of goes into other different segments of the country and other different leagues uh, going forward. But an extraordinary move from the NBA, and I think this is due to Adam Silver and also some of these big, big superstars in the league who have just had enough and want to use their platform uh, to move the country forward. Uh, it's personal to them. They feel like it could happen to them or their loved ones yes. or their sons uh, uh, and their, or their friends. Neobalika Henderson, Ron Brownstein, thank you uh, so much. We are also, of course, following breaking news internationally in some areas of coastal Louisiana already under floodwaters as Hurricane Laura approaches the Gulf Coast. This, as the governor of Louisiana, John Bell Edwards, warns residents of the impending and possible deadly storm surge. You're going to hear ranges of storm surge that we haven't heard in Louisiana since Hurricane Audrey in 1957. You're going to hear the word unsurvivable to uh, describe the storm surge that we are expecting. And that's not just bluster. Uh, that was the National, uh, I think, Hurricane Center used the word unsurvivable. CNN's Jennifer Gray joins me now from the Weather Center. I have never heard, a, and maybe I'm just not paying close enough attention, unsurvivable used uh, so openly uh, as a warning. What more are you learning about this dangerous storm surge? 
You know, I, I don't remember the last time I've heard that word either. We hear life-threatening words like that, but unsurvivable is definitely one that you should take seriously. It's true. This this is going to be an event where the storm surge is by all means going to be life-threatening. When you're talking about 20 feet of storm surge, and this this part of the Gulf Coast, Louisiana in particular, is extremely vulnerable. It's very low-lying. We could have water all the way up to I-10 easily, 30 miles from the coast. And so you are talking about total inundation when you hear 20 feet of storm surge. In fact, we already have three and four feet of storm surge on the coast, and this is still 150 miles from the coast. So 145 mile per hour winds, gust of 175. This is a dangerous category four storm. And what I fear is this could strengthen even more. It has time to become a strong category four or even a category five before making landfall. I would actually not be surprised if that were the case. It is moving to the northwest at 15 miles per hour now. Here's the radar. We've already had some rain bands come on shore. We've had tornado warnings. Of course, that's always a concern when you have these storms come on shore. Uh, So we are going to be talking about the flooding. But I think the bigger issue with this storm most definitely is going to be the wind, but also that storm surge that we cannot ignore. Already seeing more than three feet of storm surge in Calcasieu, Sabine Pass, more than two feet, freshwater, more than four feet. And like I mentioned, the storm is still 150 miles from the coast, 15 to 20 feet of storm surge right here in Cameron Parish. Cameron is already reporting uh, rain. We've already had a a rapid water rise along the coast there, Jake. So it is going to be something to watch overnight. Jennifer Gray, thank you so much. And if you you are currently in the path of the storm and you're watching this, please turn off the TV and get the hell out of there, get to safety. Join us tonight for CNN's special coverage of the Republican National Convention. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead. CNN, our coverage on CNN continues right now. I'll see you in a few hours. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.